Welcome to On the Grid, a podcast dedicated to the Valley of the Sun. This podcast is a place where you can come to meet the creators and newsmakers taking this metropolis to the next level. It's a place where you can learn about what's really happening in Phoenix. My name's Philip Haldeman, and I'll be your host. This week on the podcast, we're taking you underground. What do almost all great cities have? Great bars? Yes. But more specifically, great underground bars. And thankfully, the underground bar has been having a ride of success in Phoenix right now. And that success is called Undertow. It's the newest tiki-themed attraction under Sip Coffee and Beer Garage at 32nd Street in Indian School. It opened in August to long lines and reservations, and we have the mind behind the attraction here with us on Episode 7 of On the Grid. His name's Wesley James, and he's the co-founder of the firm Stark James. This name may sound familiar because he is also one of the minds behind Containers on Grand, the first sustainable apartment development made from shipping containers in the valley. And we're going to talk about all those things and how urban planning and utilizing our city's uniqueness can make Phoenix great. Wes, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Cool. Uh, you have seriously gotten some pretty good attention in the last year or so, a couple of years even. Um, what we are going to start on right now is you just had a, uh, an opening. You designed a new bar. It's an underground bar, I guess. You're an architect. You designed this new bar called Undertow, and it's getting a lot of good attention. Why don't you just tell people a little bit about what this new bar is like? Sure. Uh, it's uh, been a great collaboration with the entire team, actually. Um, so uh, Jason Asher and Rich Venari, um, and along with Travis, the owner of SIP, uh, where it's located. SIP, which is on uh, 36th Street in Indian School, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we've all worked together to make this project happen. Um, it's, um, and it's it, a tiki bar, right? It is Underground a tiki, bar. tiki bar. Which Well, the great thing is like, there's not a lot of opportunity for underground structures totally, here. Yeah. And uh, architecturally, it's really interesting to me because... You don't really get a chance to tell that story or use that um, that experience very often here in Phoenix, and it actually really goes. I mean, <laughs> really goes well um, with the idea of tiki and escapism, that you know, descending down into the earth, it's disconnection from reality in some way. So it really kind of um, worked well, just what it was. But the the great thing about that bar is the, the guys wanted to do a tiki bar. Um, Did they, they come to you um, and say, "Hey, we want you to design this"? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, Travis actually brought me in. We talked about it. Uh, they had already, they knew they wanted to do a tiki bar and they knew they wanted to do like a ship theme to the tiki bar. And they had this great idea for a name called Undertow. And if you guys are familiar with um, that particular structure, it's an old jiffy loop that they turned into right. sip coffee. So yes. um, the, the idea that we would actually be using one of the underground bays where they'd work on the cars right. and call it Undertow, it just, uh, they had me right there and I was uh, I was fully on board. The whole situation is really unique because like you said, it's it's made out of a freaking garage basically, yeah. which it's an interesting uh, thing on utilizing certain spaces. And I know you've, you've worked a lot in that. What was it like working basically in a mechanics, where, the, where mechanics work, you know? Sure. There are a lot of challenges to that. Oh, space. by the way, yeah, it's because really small. How big is the Tiki uh, Lounge? Um, we were just right around 500 square feet. And I actually Something, yeah. reduced it a little bit um, to help uh, the theming or the, basically the, the built-out environment of the space. But even more challenging that was the head clearance down there. We're under seven foot six uh, for all the head heights. Um, that presented a number of challenges. But most importantly, um, we were completely parked out. So. Luckily, yeah. we were able to use take advantage of City of Phoenix's Adaptive Reuse Program, which is a wonderful program 
It's intended to uh, add density uh, to downtown Phoenix and make repurposing and reusing existing structures much easier and much uh, more feasible uh, for small businesses and really anyone. Um, so they were actually already kind of maxed out in their parking um, through the adaptive reuse program. We were able to get um, an additional 500 square feet while still keeping the existing parking calculations, which was critical to us even being able to build it. You got an initial 500 square feet below? Yeah. So, you know, when you're looking at a zoning, when you're looking at building a building, you have to have it parked. There's requirements and zoning, depending where you're at, that you need to have so many parking spaces per guest or per inhabitant or whatever the case may be. And uh, as it turns out, that space was just storage. So they're really, uh, the, the, the occupancy count of that was, I don't know, probably 0.5 or one person because it was just a storage room. But by turning it into a different use, by making it a, a bar or a restaurant space, our occupancy went up by 33, 34. And that's what necessitated additional parking. So um, the, the building is 26 years old and that falls under the category. You have to be 25 years old to, the building has to be 25 years old in order to take advantage of the adaptive reuse program, um, at least through the city of Phoenix. And uh, like I said, it's it's a really wonderful program. Its intentions are fantastic, and it really is changing the way our city looks for the better. How have you worked on any other projects um, um, that has utilized the adaptive reuse program? Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the projects we worked on a few years ago, uh, right on Central Avenue, um, and just north of Indian School, which is where Clever Koi is. Uh, we also use the adaptive reuse okay. program. Okay. How, how important do you think that program is to kind of the success of making Phoenix a little bit more urban, urbanized and more like a real kind of like real city? I, I think it's I think it's programs like that that are critical, along with the downtown overlay um, that allow for additional density um, that is going to push us in the direction. I think that is undeniable, a more walkable, dense urban right. environment. Um, and beyond that, even beyond helping create the kind of environment that we all want here in Phoenix, um, it also makes projects m more feasible or allows them to be possible. A lot of times you have, a, you have an old space and in order to bring it up to existing current codes, you'd have to scrape the building or do so much work to it um, that it would be financially impossible. Just have to destroy it, basically. Yeah. So, this, this program, along with others in the city of Phoenix and other cities around in, in Arizona, actually allow you to reuse the building and there are advantages to doing that. It's actually pretty complicated, but um, it, the, the, the gist of it is these incentives are designed to use older buildings and repurpose them as opposed to demoing them. And the problem with demoing them is it destroys our history. Um, and also, not and beyond that, it actually, um, you know, when you level a building that the type of structure you need to replace it with to make sense ends up using ends up usually being people cobbling together you know four or five six lots and making some massive uh, right. structure that, that people really aren't a, a fan of so right. this allows small boutique urban infill um, and you can call it urban infill i think mm -hmm. um and it allows you to reuse that building and you know that's well, it keeps the character because a lot of these buildings are really unique spaces. They're banks, you know. They're they're like mechanics uh, garages. They're they're unique spaces that they're that take some creativity to you know find a different use for them. But the buildings, the structures are very unique, and so when you tear these down, it kind of takes away the character of our city, you know. So, I mean, I think that this is really. I mean, the more adaptive use, the better. I feel like I don't know, like if you would 
agree with me on that, you know? Uh, I would I would definitely agree with that. I think they should continue to develop and um, incentivize that right. particular program. Um, we have a don't have a lot of uh, history here in Phoenix. Right. Uh, we do have history, but it's not as as long, you know, as uh, most other even American cities. I often joke that they, you know, you build a new shopping center and they put the trees in. And you got the the wooden stakes holding up the trees. By the time the trees are old enough to take the stakes out, so they can grow by themselves. It's time to renovate the shopping right. center. And everything gets pushed over, and the trees get right. pushed over, and they put new trees in. So we constantly live in an environment of trees with stakes. So it's it is programs like this, uh, which is fantastic that the city has developed this program that uh, really changes our built environment for the better. And so going back to undertow, this. It's gotten a really good response. Talk a little bit about how people have respond to it. I mean, I'm hearing like, I'm hearing long waits, um, and so I'm curious, like, what you, how, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, the guys really took a chance on me, honestly, because this is way outside my wheelhouse. I don't normally do tiki bars or right. storytelling or themed environment. Because um, you you do a little bit more residential, right? Uh, we do a commercial. lot of a lot of residential commercial, but. Um, it's mostly modern architecture okay, using right. really modern materials. Um, you know, talking about like the modernism that you really got a hold in the fifties, mm-hmm. the idea of open space and the grid, right. know, grid, but like the structural grid, mm-hmm. um, yeah. creating, uh, liberating the space from the structure and everything that's come from that. So we we do a lot of modern architecture, and uh, this is something I've always been interested in doing. What really intrigued me about the tiki bar was their passion about it and. Uh, really was the storytelling possibility there mm. that we could tell a story with the space. Um, that was something that was going to be very challenging for me. I uh, I also really wanted to be able to make that because not only did I design it, but I also built it. So I also wanted to make sure that we were going to be able to do it for the budget um, that we needed to establish in order for the business plan to work. And that meant utilizing a lot of the existing structure and, and, and making the best of it. But the space itself, I wasn't sure how people were going to respond to it. I was highly optimistic. I was really building it for myself in a lot of ways um, because when you look, and I could talk about this for a long time actually, but I really um, did a lot of research into uh, tiki culture. And uh, it's important to note that you know tiki culture is really an American interpretation of Polynesian culture. It's not Polynesian culture. Um, and it's, it's a really important distinction. And mm. the first way or... The first wave of tiki influence or tiki culture um, started as early as the 20s and 30s, but really tiki culture in the 50s after World War II when the sailors came back mm-hmm. from the South Pacific, um, it really had, I mean, it was... It was really it popular back then, yeah. yeah. It really dominated uh, American culture. Was the was the uh, Polynesian thing new to you when you started, or do you, did you have something back in your mind that you'd always been attracted to that sort of aesthetic, or were you like, boom, kind of new to it? What intrigued me about it was the idea of escapism, its connection to American history, mm-hmm. and then it's also its connection to the Phoenix itself. Because if you kind of track Phoenix's development uh, along with really Tiki <laughs> development, a lot of the same trends and a lot of the same cultural um, impulses drove the development of both. They were tied, I would say. Um, the, at least the rapid development of Phoenix uh, from the 40s and 50s on is when Phoenix really exploded. And that was at the same time when the same um, when tiki culture was exploding and a lot and a lot there was a lot of intermixing of ideas and thought and and if I can step and this is just me opinion sure. my opining I guess but why yeah, uh, go for it <laughs> but but really yeah, I think people come to Phoenix mm. 
uh, often to reinvent themselves. And I think a lot of people understand that. Um, there's very few people that are native to Phoenix. Uh, they're, they're very proud of that. But really, people come here uh, from elsewhere because they're for a lot of reasons. But, but really, there's this impulse or this idea of change or renewal or uh, re being able to leave what you had before and, and bring on something new in the sense of you could start a new yeah. life uh, completely. I feel like um, a lot of people do, and I was just saying that's right. the only re only thing that brings people to Phoenix. Sure, yeah. But um, I think that has driven a lot of the mystique or a lot of the the draw for people coming to Phoenix. And to me, that there's a lot of connection there mentally with me with that and the idea of escapism and tiki. Do you think that's why the the um, undertow has kind of resonated so much? Um, I, I man, I wish I knew the answer to that. Uh, I think what we did there was something different um, than what people were expecting. And if I can just circle back on that kind of story, I, I didn't want to build a traditional tchotchke tiki bar. Uh, I really wanted to do something uh, novel and new and a different point of view. And so did uh, Rich and Jason. Um, so I was really lucky to have those two guys on board. Uh, it was a very collaborative process working with them. But it's really not a tiki bar. It's the story of tiki culture, really. So. When you go down into it, you're actually walking down into a clipper ship from the late 1800s, which was one of the last real sailing ships. And the idea, which I don't think most people probably read when they're in the bar, but the idea behind the concept of bar is, you know, the clipper ship sailed to Polynesia. Uh, the crew fell in love with Polynesian culture, and they decided to push all the cargo into the back of the hold and carve their own tiki bar in their ship. So... So that's the story you're telling. It's the story we're telling. It's also the story of tiki. So it's not a tiki bar. It's... I think it's kind of stepping back and really trying to tell the story of tiki culture in America. Cool. Cool. Now, whether that's resonating with people, I don't know. But <laughs> that was the I, that I was the fully intention. believe that when you have a really well-fleshed-out concept, people don't don't intrinsically get it, but they're drawn to it, I feel like. whether It's instinctual, you know? And if it's fleshed out really well, that's why Disneyland is so great, you know? Because no, no stone is unturned all de details are taken care of. And, and so I truly think that when you have the concept fleshed out, well, that's why one of the reasons people are drawn to it, you know? Yeah, and I, I agree with that. And we really went out of our way to create a, uh, a real immersive environment that is really about storytelling. Um, and you go down there, you really do, because you're walking down into the earth. You feel like you're going down into the hold of the ship. Um, everything I did was try to extend the space um, through a bunch of different uh, architectural cues, uh, including uh, the glass floor, which gives me a bunch of hard shadows down. So you actually feel an extension of the light. And uh, I brought a lot of my academic okay. architecture thinking behind something that's really kind of fun and whimsical. And um, I've really enjoyed the process and I'm really looking forward to having opportunity to do more projects like this and bring what I've done in the past together with this um, new, hopefully, uh, type of architecture I can practice. Cool. And so this is vaguely connected to this, but you are going to be featured on um, the Discovery Channel sometime soon, right? What can you say about that, at least? Oh, um, yeah, we're um, we're going to be on a, a show called Blue Collar Backers, and um, the the real premise of the show is if you're a, a young business, if you're under two years uh, operating, it's very difficult to get traditional funding, especially after the uh, the sure. downturn. Um, so it's it's a a show that really centers on how do small business owners, entrepreneurs, architects, builders, and um, investors work together collaboratively uh, to make spaces and 
businesses happen in, in kind of in the face of that financial reality. difficulties. Yeah. yeah. And so can you say what, uh, what sort of projects will be featured on this show? I can't talk about our specific projects. Okay. Um, it, it was, it really is exactly what we were doing before uh, discovery reached out to us. Um, okay. And the, the production company actually reached out to us and, uh, uh right out of the blue uh, like we didn't go uh, seeking it out i think they found my That's instagram easy. account or something yeah. <laughs> and we were already doing exactly what they uh, were uh, you know the premise of the show was we were it was a no-brainer huh yeah we had done that since the beginning of our company really um just to make work for ourselves uh, back when we first started um you know six seven years ago we had to create our own work in order to have work um in the doldrums of the recession so um, an extension of that, that way of thinking, we've just kept working um, and not just doing architecture and construction, uh, but often helping clients with financing or helping them uh, develop something in order to get financing. Um, so it's really been a natural extension of what we've done. And um, it's just so happened their show, uh, the Venn diagram there was. And that'll solid. be uh, roughly when on the air? Uh, it's coming out. Um, I think after this probably airs, the, the first episode is going to air on August 26th. Okay. And it really follows four groups around the country, uh, at least four groups that I know of. And um, we're just one of a, a much larger uh, show there. We'll be in a couple of the episodes. I'm not even sure which ones. So. Oh, yeah. So the... Um... It starts. The series starts on August twenty sixth, but you don't know if your your episode will necessarily necessarily air on that day. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So they're they're keeping us uh, as they do keeping us excited. TV land, about it. right? Oh, it's been. It was really. It was. It was kind of a tough decision. I didn't know what I was getting myself into, but the the people we worked with were exceptional, and it was the crew a, and all that stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, everywhere from Discovery on down, and the. Um, just a life experience. I mean, I couldn't pass. Yeah, that that's up. awesome. And you've got a document there that's like, you know, yours forever. Yeah. You know, um, but uh, one of the things that um, where I first heard about you was um, the containers on Grand. This was kind of a I don't know revolutionary, innovative, but it, it it caught it caught on well too. You've got you've got you've got one project, the project on Grand, but you said you're also um, coming up. You're working on another project. Yeah, that's right. Similar project. So. For those of the folks out there that don't know, let them know what the project is about, and then explain about what what you're com what's coming up next. Sure. Uh, so, Containers on Grand is an eight-unit apartment complex on Grand and Twelfth Avenue in Phoenix, um, and there's a lot of precedence for um, homes and, and structures built out of shipping containers. The there's two big problems though, and it, it's, so it's not necessarily innovative. It's I mean, it's really been happening since the '70s. Um, a lot of people have looked. There's a lot of architects. You'll see a lot of renderings online of cool looking structures made out of shipping containers. Um, the problem is making a market rate product, like an apartment complex out of shipping containers. So you'll see uh, precedent for multifamily overseas, especially in um, Europe. Um, and that's really a necessity of the market, I would say, and different type of, of building um, environment. Um, here in the States, there's, no, there's only one other project I can think of uh, that was at least as of right now, uh, there's a multifamily approach, and it's a totally different paradigm. It's more of a communal space. Different than what you are you work. Yeah, on. and the the challenge that you'll find a lot of boutique projects like custom homes that cost four hundred dollars a square foot, or really cool Starbucks shops, um, and those are boutique projects that aren't meant to be built for a price per square foot that makes them uh, duplicatable. Uh, they're really built for, as a marketing and advertising uh, strategy. And I can appreciate that too. And we were able to um, benefit from that as well. But the real, the real challenge, and I think what we 
were able to accomplish with containers on Grand was being able to find a path through the, the city uh, building codes. And then, but more importantly, being able to design it in such a way, the real challenge was designing it in a way that would allow us to build it at a price that's competitive with stick frame and stucco construction. And that's an incredibly challenging undertaking. And I really knew it going in. Um, the partners on that, that, that's again, a really great story of collaboration. It's a, a group of investors, uh, the landowner, people invested money. We, we're part owners. We put in our, our time and effort into the project as well as uh, capital uh, to make it happen. So it, it really was a labor of love on everyone's part involved in that project uh, to make it happen. But we were able to do it in such a way and build it at a price that is it's still, we built it for more than uh, conventionally framed, but not that much more, if that makes sense. So we're still able to compete. Uh, our price per square foot rental is the same. It's actually less than, than most apartments are being rented for in downtown Phoenix. So, and we did that through a number of kind of design uh, decisions. Um, you had mentioned um, finding a path through the building code. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? So the tricky bit about shipping containers is when you Go to build something out of two by fours or eight eight sixteen masonry units. Uh, those are described within the building code. Trusses are described within the building code. There's a whole process of taking a raw material and turning it into something that can be quantified as a unit. Uh, so if you want to use a novel building material, uh, which is what this is, it doesn't seem novel because it's a structure. Right? It looks like a building already. But as far as the code's concerned, it's a novel building material, which means it's just the raw material, the raw components in which it's comprised of. So in order to do that, you actually have to create new you have to, text amendments, basically? You, well, you could do that. So I think... Because the language isn't there? Is that kind of what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, the language isn't there. I, the real... Well, let me step back here one mm-hmm. second. The way you need to get it through the building code is to, um, when you're engineering it, engineer it as a bunch of individual components of a system, which is what we did. Uh, it's not a unit. It's not a shipping container gotcha. that's structured. Um, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, right, about the robust structural qualities of a shipping container. You can stack them fully loaded with tens of thousands of pounds of weight on rolling seas, 11 high across the ocean. But that is just anecdotal evidence, right? You actually have to do all the work. And it doesn't work if you're trying to get a, get it through city council or whatever, right? Th- through the building process, yeah. yeah and right. City of Phoenix, again, was incredibly helpful uh, in this process, and they worked with us hand-in-hand in order to find a way um, to actually get this through. And there's some other uh, container projects other than the ones we're working on that are currently making their way through the city too. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I think for in the States for things other than boutique projects that people are willing to spend more money on it just to have something made out of a shipping container, what's going to need to happen is someone with the resources is going to need to take shipping containers and really get them adopted into the international building code. Um, If that is done, if like one of the large shipping conglomerates or a large uh, distribution company here in the States were to do that, um, if there was to be, if a shipping container were to have the same classification as a truss or a steel beam or any of the things that are uh, described uh, in the building code, that would make the threshold for using them and make them a lot more accessible to use. And architects would be able to understand how to use them. Uh, and then, the, more importantly, the municipalities uh, and counties would be able to have a document they can go to that, is, that there's no questions or mystery about it. 
Um, and if that were ever done, I think we would see an explosion of shipping container projects in the States because they really are a resource that's just stockpiling mm -hmm. on our shores because of the trade deficit. Because we import only and export very little, we just have a constant supply of shipping containers stockpiling here. Do you think it would happen more if our population grew? You said it's popular in Europe. They're more marketable in Europe. Um, yeah, um, that's a really big question. I, I really enjoy thinking about things like that, actually. Um, but I, that's definitely, I don't think, a problem we have here no, in right. Phoenix, or definitely not in the right. US or Phoenix. Um, our land costs and taxation on land is so low right. um, compared to most other developed countries um, that there's not going to be the genesis. And I think it's a, we talk about a bigger point here. I think in Phoenix, one of the the, the challenges in the city of Phoenix is that um, we rely on this treadmill of constant construction because mm -hmm. that's our number one economic force right now. And it has been for decades. So it's this treadmill of we need to keep building things. So we need to keep basically land costs low and we need to keep taxation on the land low so that people still want to come in and buy that land and not be taxed on it so that we can keep building more stuff to keep our economy. But it's not going. quite as we've seen in the recession. Well, we did recover. Well, the hardest I and mean, us in Vegas, we, we were hit the hardest and we recovered very slowly compared to other parts of the, of the, of the Well, country. that's what I was going to say. It's not exactly the most sustainable industry in the world, right? Well, I think there's, there's pros and cons to it, but I think the underlying thing here is we need to diversify Arizona and specifically the Metro Phoenix economy, everything we can do to diversify our economy to make us more resilient to those uh, bumps and bruises. And then that's going to give us the debt the density you're talking about. It's not zoning. I don't think it's not because you can write all the zoning codes you want. You can put all the master plans out there that you want, but if you don't have the tax base to do it, then you're never going to be able to realize that infrastructure, the, the city needs the taxes or the development companies need to have the money in order to make those improvements. We're never going to have that until our tax, our, you know, our property taxes are higher. We're never going to have that until we have a more diverse economy, I don't think. Again, this is way beyond my area of expertise, but um, that's my two cents. Well, I think it's a good transition into you are, you not are not from Phoenix, but you have made a life for yourself here and have told me that you do, you love Phoenix and you want to make it better. And I'm kind of curious to get some of your thoughts on what Phoenix could look like in 20 years, you know? Sure, yeah, uh, and I'm I'm from Flagstaff, so I'm- That's right, yes. Still yeah, consider yeah. myself a native, but right. I'm a transplant at the same right. time. Uh, I, I do love Phoenix. I think it's a very unique city. Uh, a lot of people don't, um, I don't really don't really appreciate the, the unique qualities we have here. Mm. What um, are some of those unique qualities? Do you think? Well, unfortunately, I think one of the, the most interesting things we've got going on here, other than geography and weather, which you can't downplay those, um, is our transportation infrastructure. So we all want a more walkable, dense urban environment. Um, but I don't want Phoenix to go and do that solely at the expense of our transportation infrastructure, the grid, you know, the, the streets. It's one of the few things we have as an advantage over other over over other cities. Um, it's really it seems to me. And again, this is complete conjecture; it's not my area of expertise. But it does seem short-sighted to me to really, at the expense of our streets, create a more uh, dense and walkable environment. So, at the expense of our streets, um, what do you mean by that? This is going to be slightly controversial, but if we take all of our streets and make them all more walkable basically reduce them by lanes, 
you know, uh, narrow the, the lanes, which was reduces the speed limit that would be allowable. Uh, and basically the, the pressure, those kind of pressures are, are exist here in Phoenix. And I, and I totally understand the reasoning behind them. Um, I just hope that we can find a way to still keep this amazing infrastructure that we have here and this amazing advantage. You I mean, mean the grid? The grid system, itself. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Yeah. yeah. The, the actual transportation, right. the, the roads themselves. Right. It's unlike, I mean, people that grow up here or from around here don't realize what we have as far as. Uh, it's a really nice. Yeah. It is really nice. Yeah. And it's also annoying. I understand why people hate uh, the yeah, grid. Yeah, but it's just not nearly as bad as every other city in the country. Well, I mean, the big cities, the big cities. We're like one of the big cities population wise oh, yeah. now, but. Try driving in Chicago or L.A. or New York. It sucks, you know? Honestly, I think that's the tip. I mean, other than property value and cost of living, that's a real tipping factor for people wanting to move or even businesses wanting to move here because their employees can have less expensive houses further out because it's easier for them to get to their downtown uh, destinations. And and, and I'm not saying that I I don't want a walkable environment. But don't do it for for a walkable sake or whatever. Yeah. Like, and I yeah. don't know the answer to this for sure. I just I hope that we can find a solution that is novel to Phoenix, that right. is unique to us, as opposed to following the paradigm of other cities that don't have this amazing resource. So if we basically say roads suck, we need to reduce dependence on the car, which I agree we need to reduce dependence on the on the vehicle, but we also it seems short-sighted to me to actually just forsake that and give away one of the most differentiating differentiating features of our city. Um, it, I think will actually hurt our economy in a lot of ways. There there has to be solutions that allow for both. Um, what do you both. think would hurt our our economy? I, I, I like I was saying before. I think, as odd as it may sound, uh, that the the actual transportation infrastructure we have here in Phoenix. Oh, you're saying if we try to change people that? Here. Yeah. Gotcha. So. Well, Phoenix is so big, you know. It is, and that's a that's a problem. I, I get that too, um, but I'm just saying, let's look at our advan- advantages. Let's look at the things that are novel to Phoenix. Let's look at the things that maybe, if it's not right, at least we have here, and it's an asset that we have. And let's not undermine that asset, and then step behind all these other cities and st- step back forty years. Why should we destroy our our transportation infrastructure and road system? Just to step and start a light rail and do you and see that as ha- oh do you well, do you see the light rail as being a part of that problem? I, I don't see it as being a problem. I, I really like light rail. I just I see the problem as forsaking transportation or road systems and totally stepping back um, behind every other city in America is just stepping putting us behind every city in America. We have something that's amazing here. It would be great if we can find a way to leverage that to the to, to as an advantage for our city as opposed to just stepping back 30 to 40 years. And then we're just going to be behind every other city. We're not going to be differentiated in any way. This is a real way for us to differentiate ourselves when it comes to businesses looking. Um, like we were saying before, that that's actually a really amazing benefit we offer. Totally. And it's the reason a lot of companies move here they're like, because their employees can live further out. I'm not saying it's good, but it is an advantage. That I don't think I don't think the whole city should be walkable. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, see, I see kind of like pockets, you know, focus on certain pockets um, where walkability makes sense, you know, downtown is obviously a, a good example of that, of course, yeah. you know, um, putting, I mean, nobody wants to really wants to walk on Grand Avenue. You know what I mean? Like I think we can make baby steps right, in the yeah, direction. Exactly. I think it's incremental exactly. as any change should be. Um, right. but I just don't want us to cut off our nose to spite our face. So right, to speak. right, right. So, uh, Flagstaff, what brought you down to Phoenix? 
Uh, I grew up in Flag. Uh, I did a lot of traveling between. I actually started. I went to college at NAU. Started there. Studied philosophy and astronomy for some reason. Yeah. I started wow. astronomy first, and then philosophy. Uh, then I did some soul searching, traveled around, and a variety of circumstances just landed me back in Phoenix. Um, and then you go back and get. Um, yep, yeah, and then I, I actually started back at, at ASU. ASU. It was one of the few moments in my life I, I was really doing some wandering in my early twenties. Uh, both uh, physically, you know, traveling around and mentally kind of figuring out what I wanted to do. And it literally, uh, very rarely this has happened to me, but it was literally a light bulb went off in my head. And it was like, I don't, I don't even know where it came from, but just said, well, you what? should go check out the architecture program, see I if they offer one. I didn't even know if they had, had offered one. There's nothing I'd ever considered. I always considered a, a hard science potentially uh, is what I wanted to do. And, went and, and they have out. a great school, right? They do have a, uh, they do have a great Pretty school. Pretty good school. Yeah. Well, and I, one of the themes that I've noticed um, in terms of seeing the city growth on money, many different layers is you see kind of these creative people, they grow up here, you know, they grow up in Arizona, they grow up in Phoenix, and they, they go away. They go to college someplace else. They do soul searching, travel around like you did, and then they come back and they bring what they left, they bring it back, whatever that may be, the knowledge. Um, whatever industry they have or anything like that, but they bring it back and they make Phoenix better. I'm curious, what was it that brought you back? Or it could be many different things, obviously, but but was it the idea of home or wanting to, you know, contribute back to the place where you grew up, the state that you were grew up in? Like, what, what do you think it was that kind of, to get a little philosophical, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, back then I was probably, I was either 21 or 22. Um, uh, I traveled to Europe. I was uh, I would actually lived in um, the southeast for a year as well and traveled around. I considered joining the military at that time. A lot of members. Where of my in the southeast? Seriously, did you live? Uh, Charleston and then okay. Greenville, South Carolina. Okay. Um, I was really trying to figure out uh, what I wanted to do, and in the middle of well, that, well, you were a philosophy major, so <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. like uh, you can write right. or you can be a professor. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Unless you yeah, go into something else. Right. And, um, I think I just kind of hit a, I mean, honestly, I think I hit a dead end. I wasn't sure what I want to do. I was looking for something that I couldn't find out uh, of myself or out of the state or country or anything. Mm. Um, and I, I just, I naturally gravitated back here uh, to Phoenix. I didn't want to go back to fly. I couldn't afford to live in Flagstaff at the time. Uh, I wasn't, didn't have a college education and, um, it was really Best thing that ever happened to me. Oh, so you went back, back to Phoenix. You uh, you kind of traveled around before you got your undergrad stuff. Oh yeah, so yeah. I dropped out of college. So okay. I I went. I studied at NAU for three and a half years. So close. I know, <laughs> <laughs> I know right? I was like, screw it. Uh, it just wasn't fulfilling. You know, you're at that that age. And, I get it. Yeah. Um, my my family really encouraged me to just you know do what Follow I needed heart. to do yeah. to to be happy, and um, I I did that, and I. Traveling around was immensely helpful. Uh, a lot, I experienced a lot of. I had never been. This is amazing. Until I was uh, just out of college, or until I dropped out of college uh, the first time there, I had never been east of Mississippi. I'd never seen a dense urban environment. You know, my experience of a city was a point in the wilderness. Right. You go on the other side of the Mississippi. It's wilderness or points in the urban fabric, and almost the entire rest of the developed world is that way uh it, you know certainly europe everywhere i traveled in europe and it was almost 
I think this is sad. This is not sad, but I think this is real honest. I was claustrophobic. Uh, a lot of the places I went, having been oh. raised in the West, um, right. I you mean this... when you went to when you traveled on your own? Yeah, I've, I've heard and... story. You know, going to New York City, um, you feel trapped there just because you can't see water, you can't see land. It's all buildings everywhere. Is that kind of what you mean? But I think physically, and then also just kind of emotionally. Uh, even when you didn't have the, like the physical barriers, um, right. there was no sense, direct sense of connection to nature, and you don't really have that here in Phoenix necessarily. But what you do have it's here different. in Arizona, which I, I probably really missed the most thinking back on it, I'm glad we had this discussion. I really thought about it. Um, is like a visual connection to, to nature beyond you. So especially in the Southeast and even in lots of parts of Europe, the, the coastal humidity and haze, your visibility is really low. And that's probably great for most people. I think psychologically, I was probably just ingrained to these larger used open to spaces yeah. and hard shadows and right. the quality of light here. And I just, I never felt, I enjoyed everywhere I went, but I never felt comfortable, honestly. And we don't appreciate it when we come, because we live here, but coming here from the outside of the Western US, where, because we have such low humidity here, we have unlimited visibility. That sounds like a, a silly thing, but you can see mountains and existence so far away it's from It's getting you. worse though, but yes, yeah, totally, I, yeah. Even now, yeah. and even under really bad conditions, the visual extension of what, and I may be getting too philosophical here, but... Your, your visual extension is so much further. You feel so much smaller in a lot of ways here than you do in mm, other parts of the world. Interesting, yeah. I, th I think ultimately, if you had to pin me down, I would say psychology brought me back here. Just your own my, psychology? My own psychology, yeah. wanting to be reconnected that that larger space, that larger experience. Hmm. Larger not in the city, but just spatially. You know, you know, everybody, you know, they talk about finding yourself, and that's kind of the idea of what you're we're talking about, I guess. Um, but you, you really... And I did the same thing too, you know, you gotta, you kind of got to get away to find yourself, but you never really do lose yourself. It was always there. You had, you came back and you obviously had a much better, bigger appreciation for yeah. our, the environment that we live in, I think. And, and I think that, I think traveling and kind of getting out and, and getting on your, on your own, that fosters that thought process, you know? So oh, I, I totally mean, I, I think, yeah. This has not been an uncommon theme for a lot of people that come sure. back and really want to contribute. Travel know. kids. Yeah, right? <laughs> That's all you got is a backpack, right? Yep. Yeah, I remember those. Yeah. How do you see Phoenix 10, 20 years from now on, the, on your best day? I mean, like, not what could happen, your most ideal. What does your dream Phoenix look like in 10 or 20 years? Yeah, I like that question because I'm not bounded by reality. <laughs> so... Um, and again, kind of speaking outside my expertise, I'm sure I'll wander a bit. Uh, I'm going to cage that by saying there's so much change happening right now um, in, in our economy and our culture. Overall, it, it's, yeah. it's very difficult uh, to understand where. where it's hard to say is. what's going to happen yeah, a year up, from now. Look up quantum computing. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> okay. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> seriously, it's um, our world is radically changing at an incredibly accelerating rate. Um, but you know, if, if I can think in a linear path, not an exponential path, um, Phoenix, what I would love to see Phoenix grow into is something that is not following every other urban core that we see in America. Uh, I, I, we're already behind um, in, in what we offer. Uh, I want to see Phoenix take advantage of the unique geography and um, weather and also, you know, infrastructure that I was talking about before, uh, transportation infrastructure, and also 
even our tax rate and everything that we can take advantage of and really use those as assets as opposed to undermining them to you know to pretend honestly to pretend to be a city that that we're not we can be something completely our own we can be something that's that we're, that is unique i would want us to see it move in that direction create our own paradigm um, i would really like to see dense urban cores or or, or corridors um, that are supported by a robust infrastructure of transportation infrastructure as much as we want transportation to go away and, and kind of the, the idea that it's a dream that internet is going to reduce our reliance on uh, transportation infrastructure but honestly it's done the opposite um, people stay home people stay yeah. home but the, the ups trucks don't need to drive True. and uh, we still need products delivered continuously um, in our society and if we're not talking about societal change we're still accepting um, our consumer society and, and our kind of way of life i, I really want to see us move in our own direction and, and use what we have existing and our assets that we have now so yeah, i would like to see a new paradigm a new zoning paradigm like how can we approach a cityscape that is unlike anything we've experienced in any other city before and take chances and look at novel approaches as opposed to following in the footsteps of other large metropolitan cities in, in the in the states just from a climate standpoint uh, we have a lot to learn there's a lot of great um, systems in place and a lot of great programs in place for uh, urban shading and for solar um, the fact that we get so much sunlight that that would be one way of really yeah. establishing a um, a system that the urban fabric can be developed Very around Palo Solari a little bit yeah oh yeah definitely and it, the and I'm just dreaming here um, I would just like to see real density um, in clustering or in cores um, connecting uh, the the various parts of our city let's not get let's not try to create one megatropolis in downtown phoenix as much as i like uh, phoenix let's embrace the fact that we're a, a, a splintered large community and work in, incrementally uh towards a a better uh, pleasant kind of living experience um and i, I think our, the, our path ahead is diversifying our economy and i'm beating a drum here but really using what we have um all the advantageous things we have in place now so we can leap over all those other cities and we create our own path um i actually have a lot of ideas on on that um but well you're starting to yeah. see um i think you are starting to see these clusters pop up around the uh, light rail stops i don't know i wonder if if that could be you know 10 20 years from now those are the little hubs of urban density that what you're talking about you know in in some ways and i also i'm i'm this is total dreaming because it's hard to get um kind of like really um, novel or risk-taking at a um at a civic level mm, yeah. but real some real risk-taking um as an approach to how we build out our environment one approach and this i can get into to tedious detail well but, yes yes Expound a little bit on that. Yeah, for, for, to, to give some sort of visualization to that. There's a lot of different ways that that could happen. There's been a lot of different approaches proposed for how city uh, like Phoenix could grow. Let's pick one of them and go with it. And one that has a real business model behind it. And, and something I've always been enamored with and been thinking about a lot lately is, you know, how can, what if we used our, our streets? No one likes to walk on a street. You know, we, we're trying to make this so that we're walking on streets, we're riding our bikes on streets, and we're using um, vehicles on streets. Um, what if we can use that property? And this is to 
total dreamland, right? This will never happen. But you know, you could you could use the streets. The city could lease that land. All the land above the street could be used to build you know eleven story structures uh, that would be shaded. And then you could have these structures that are linear and connect various parts of the city. I'm I'm used about that kind of stuff a lot. And well, you just, said the world's going so fast, you know, yeah. you never know. But Seriously. let's embrace something that's actually different and, right. and something that actually embraces yes. what we have here. And it doesn't have to be that yes. for sure, but let's do something different and new and not uh, as much as I love the light rail. That's 30 years ago, right? If we keep following that path, we're going to be 30 years behind every city in the United States and we're going to stay there. We need <laughs> to jump gotcha. over all that crap and create our own identity. Um, and I just... That's what I want to see. Not anything specific. I just want to see Phoenix create its own identity. Something more innovative, you yeah. know, than just what everybody else does, right? Exactly. Because Phoenix has does we're, have a little bit of that going it, on. You well, know? it does, and we're unlike almost any other city in the U.S., and we're not really considering that in our urban growth. Wow. Well, thank you for being on the show. Of course. Cool. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good luck with everything in the future. You too. Thank you. something completely similarly related. We just talked about a bunch of things that makes a city a big city. There's walkability, good transportation, overall urbanization, and my favorite, the underground bar. To me, there's always been something about an underground bar. I don't know, maybe it's the idea that you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, um, like you're breaking the rules, you know, uh, that you're in on some sort of secret, like hanging out in a treehouse but under the cover of shadows like a treehouse for adults. There's something subversive about it. I don't know. It's it's just been always been a weird sort of romanticism for me. And in Phoenix right now, we're seeing a, a lot more underground bars, probably more than we ever have before. Places like the Rokery, Valley Bar, and now Undertow. But it wasn't always like that. I remember when there was only one underground bar in Phoenix, and it was a place called Monroe's. It had red lights, copper bar tops, music almost every night, and and at one point, there was a statue of Bubba Fett that greeted you as you descended below the streets of downtown Phoenix. It was like walking into another universe. This was a place with true character. And if you want to talk about a place that made downtown Phoenix unique, this was one of those places. This was before developers bet on high-end multifamily housing and when people in the suburbs considered downtown a scary place to walk around at night. But there wasn't much to fear at all. Even if there was, Monroe's was a subterranean refuge, a place where the bartender might forget to charge you for one of your drinks, but he was also more likely to remember your name. Monroe's was a place where the last call lights might reveal the place to be dingier than your friends from Scottsdale might prefer. But it was also a place where a handshake from a stranger could be the cleanest thing you experienced all week. And that's my Phoenix dream. Thanks for listening to the show, guys. If you would like to reach us, we can be found at onthegridphx.com or you can email us at onthegridphx at gmail.com. On the Grid is produced by Chris Ayers. Intro music was performed by local band Factories. They can be reached at factoriesmusic.com. And by the way, we were saddened by the recent passing of David Bowie, but a few Phoenix residents are honoring him in big ways. On September 10 and 11, our friend Steve Weiss, with no festival required, will be screening the concert film Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders. 
It's showing at the Phoenix Center for the Arts, and tickets are available at brownpapertickets.com. And do yourself a favor sometime soon. Drive down 7th Street north of McDowell. You'll find a pretty cool collection of murals representing the many incarnations of Mr. Bowie. It's a project by artist and Phoenix resident Maggie Keene. Once again, thank you guys so much for joining us for our seventh episode of On the Grid. Became the special man. Then we were Screwed up eyes and screwed down hairdo Like some cat from Japan He could lick on by smiling He could leave them to hang They came on so loaded, man